Felt like a fish swimming upstream there, trying to make it to the pulpit. Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to Genesis 32. Genesis chapter 32 and verse 6. Lord willing, looking at verses 6 through 12 this morning. The title of our message is Standing on the Promises. We want to be people that are standing on divine promises in these last days. Amen? And as we're standing on the promises, we want to be active and effective in ministry in the world. So the song is Standing on the Promises, not standing on the promises while sitting on the premises. We are in a section of the book of Genesis where the Lord is developing the nation of Israel through the patriarch Jacob. Jacob having left that circle there up north, a place called Haran or Padan Aram, 20-year sojourn, where he has been cheated over and over again by his uncle Laban, and yet has become very, very wealthy despite the oppression. He's put sort of a final statement on his issue with Laban. He's been summoned by God back into the promised land, which is the circle there next to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, the land of Canaan. It hasn't even been technically, the name hasn't been changed yet to the land of Israel. In fact, in this chapter, not today, but in this chapter, you'll see where the name Israel comes from. As Jacob is making his way back, um, he's got to deal with another problem. And it's kind of interesting in life. You get one problem fixed and there's another one right around the corner. Have you guys noticed that? Uh, I don't think the Lord ever lets us put it in cruise control too long because he wants to build our character through the next trial. But there's this lingering issue that he has with his brother Esau, who is very resentful towards Jacob. He thinks Jacob... Or we can remember back how Jacob cheated Esau out of the birthright. And Jacob does not, Esau doesn't like that. Esau has a murderous grudge against his brother. And so as Jacob is making his way back to the land of Canaan, later to be called the land of Israel, now he's got to deal with this 20-year-old problem. And so chapters 32 and 33 is how these two, Jacob and Esau, become reconciled. So you can sort of do an outline here of chapters 32 and 33. It has four major parts. We covered part one last time where Jacob basically ran into some angels and the angels are sort of these divine escorts, if you will, bracketing the promised land. They sort of supervised Jacob's exit from the promised land for 20 years, and now they become prominent as Jacob is returning to the land of Israel. He actually sees these angels, and that's why in chapter 32, verses 1 and 2, the place where he was at gets the name Mahanaim, meaning camps. God's camp, he saw via the angels and my camp. We made reference last time to Arnold Fruchtenbaum's statement about the angels. It says, furthermore, behold, the angels of God. In the book of Genesis, the phrase, the angels of God, is found only twice. Here and in 32.1, Arnold Fruchtenbaum is making that point about angels concerning Jacob's ladder at Bethel back in chapter 28. Here and in 32 verse 1, one of the verses we looked at last week, 
It is significant as to the circumstances when it appears. Here in verse 12, the angels of God are mentioned as Jacob departs from the land. And then they appear as Jacob is returning to the land. So there is sort of an angelic um, activity surrounding this very special land, the land of Israel. Uh, the land that God bequeathed to the patriarch Abram, who later became Abraham. It's called Canaan at this point, but it's about to get a name change to the land of Israel. It's a tract of real estate that extends all the way from modern-day Egypt to modern-day Iraq, all the way from the Nile to the Euphrates. And the reason it's significant is because that is a land that Israel will occupy in totality in the millennial kingdom. And last week, you might recall, as I was making that point about the angels, I misinterpreted or misspoke or goofed. How's that? Um, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's statement, and I made it sound like angels other than chapter 28 and angels chapter 32 are not found in the book of Genesis. And that really is not what he's saying here. He's saying the expression, the angels of God, is only found in chapter 32 and is only found in chapter 28 because as many of you pointed out, Beginning with my wife, by the way. (laughs) Angels are found elsewhere in the Bible, just not that expression. Angels are found elsewhere in Genesis. Arguably, angels are found in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. In that case, fallen angels. And then you do find angels again in Genesis 19, verse 1. Where it says, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So, Uh, Probably not the first mistake I've ever made, certainly won't be the last. So if you were one of the 500 people that emailed me on that, I (laughs) want to thank you for being good Bereans and searching the Scripture as we're all called to do. Amen. But anyway, here's the place where Jacob comes to, Maha Naim, there's where it is in the Transjordan, and that's where he camps and names this place two camps. Uh, the plural Aim ending in Hebrew means plurality like the letter S or ES at the end of a noun means plural in English. He names it uh, two camps or camps. Taking that word angel, which is sort of an unusual use of the word. Usually it's hosts. But it's a different word, and he just takes it and he pluralizes it. And so that's where that area got its name. And so this is Jacob's trajectory back into the promised land. And at this point, because he's got Esau he's got to deal with, which is who's holding a 20-year-old murderous grudge, he sends a message to Esau. So in verses 3 through 6, the messengers are sent. Uh, Where is Esau? Esau is is dwelling there just south of the Dead Sea in a place called Edom. And Jacob is trying to sort of um, smooth things over. So the messengers are sent out. Verse 3, the content of the message is found. Verses 4 and 5. And then the messengers return with a word from Esau. And look at what it says there in verse 6. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau. And furthermore, he is coming to meet you. And look at this. 400 men are with him. And think if you were in Jacob's position how you would analyze that. I mean, is, is he, he doesn't know. He hasn't been around his brother for 20 years. Is there still hard feelings? I mean, 400 people is more than just a mere escort. Is he coming to attack? Is he coming to retaliate? Is he coming to, re, in his mind, retake the blessing that was given to me? And so Jacob, as you might imagine, starts to take precautions. And... His precautions, verses 7 through 12, are described. 
And basically, he's doing two things, two responses. Number one, he divides his company. We'll see why, verses 7 and 8. And number two, he starts to pray, verses 9 through 12. And particularly as you look at his prayer, it's a tremendous um, example of how I think we are to pray when we face problems. Because in your life, there might be 400 people coming after you. And something has happened in your life that you don't really know how to interpret. Uh, you can interpret it different ways, but it looks somewhat severe. And so when you're in that circumstance, how do you handle it? And how are, to, how are you to pray in the midst of it? That's why verses 9 through 12 is so significant. But his first response is the division of his company. And you see that there in verses 7 and 8. And we can learn here three things about the division of his company. First of all, notice his fear. Chapter 32, verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. For a long time as a Christian, I did not understand this. But fear or anxiety... I'm not talking about fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1, verse 7. I'm talking about fear of people, fear of circumstances, uh, fear of you see in your life a lot of contingencies, not knowing how things are going to work out. Our natural response is fear, worry, or anxiety. For a long time as a Christian, I really did not understand that that was a sin, but it is. I'm thinking of Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, where Paul says, be anxious for nothing. I mean, even 400 people coming after you. But in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Greek there, be anxious for nothing, is what we call an imperative. It's a command. So if I'm allowing anxiety into my life, I'm violating a command of God, which makes it a sin. Why does God look at anxiety and worry as a sin? Because Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. Faith just means trust. And I know in my personal life when my mind is filled with worries, I know at that very instant I'm not trusting the Lord. Because you cannot experience worry or fear, and faith at the same time. They're polar opposites. I know I'm walking in faith when I'm not worried. I know I'm not walking in faith when I am worried. And the Lord actually looks at that as a sin. It's, it's, you're not, you're not trusting me. It's interesting in the Bible, and I've said this many times from this pulpit, that the command fear not or do not fear occurs in the Bible 365 times. Hey, that's kind of cool. That's like one day for every day of the year. Every day you wake up and you look at your life and what's going to happen that particular day and the Lord says, don't be afraid. You know, be strong and courageous. Uh, don't lapse into fear. In fact, I know that when I'm operating in fear, I know exactly where that's coming from. It cannot be coming from the Holy Spirit. Second Timothy chapter one, verse seven, Paul says this about young Timothy, who had a lot of health problems. He was inexperienced. He was put in charge of a major church, in fact, the major church of the first century. He had problems of people coming at him from the outside, people rising up against him from the inside. And in the midst of all of that, Paul says to Timothy, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. 
So when I'm moving into timidity or fear, I know that that can't be the work of the Holy Spirit because the Bible tells us that God has not given us that kind of spirit. So where is it coming from? It's probably coming from my sin nature that has a tendency to try to want to work everything out in advance without trusting God. God is kind of a last resort. Yeah, God, I'll check in with you when I need you. I've got this one covered. Well, the problem is God keeps putting you in situations that are bigger than you. So if you think you can figure it out, your life is going to be filled with perpetual anxiety. It's interesting that when you go to the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and verse 8, it describes the unsaved. I'm always fascinated every time I read this. Description of the unsaved. It says, but for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. He's listing the characteristics of unsaved people. And the very first thing he mentions is they're afraid. They're cowardly. I mean, if I, if I were writing this, and you could praise the Lord, I didn't, but I would probably put murderers first or sorcerers first. I mean, to me, those look like the worst sins. But God says, no, the worst sin is the coward. Because the coward is not trusting in me. They don't have any relationship to me. And all these other sins seem to flow out of being cowardly, being, being, uh, being afraid. Proverbs 28 and verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. You know, this idea of fear, fear of man, fear of people, anxiety, that's not who the godly are. That's not who God's people are. I mean, that's, that's the wicked. The wicked are afraid of everything. I remember we got a little dog at my house when I was growing up, and this dog was afraid of his own shadow. He'd see his own shadow and just, you know, freak out. That's kind of how the, the wicked are. I mean, they're afraid of everything. They're right down to being afraid of their own shadow. And that's not how the godly are, because we have a relationship to an all-powerful God. And so we can be, in the midst of duress, bold as a lion. Proverbs 29.25 says the fear of man, not the fear of God, the fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. If we're operating in the fear of man, we're like moving into a trap, a mouse trap. I don't want to go too far out on a limb on this, but it is amazing to me the restrictions that we've all put up with since 2020. Sort of the unparalleled growth of big government mandating everything in our lives right down to when a church can be open. Why do we submit to that? At the end of the day, we're afraid. It's fear. And the people that are promoting the snare, promoting the trap, know that. They know we're very timid people. And they know that if they can move us into a state of fear, we'll put up with all sorts of restrictions that aren't found in any of the laws of the land or our Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. Because we're afraid. Fear is a very powerful motivator to get people to behave a certain way. But when you're a Christian, what is there to really be afraid of? I mean, are you afraid to die? Absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. I mean, if someone kills you, they might even be doing you a favor when you think about it. I mean, now don't go getting suicidal. (laughs) But, you know, Paul the Apostle had no fear of death. That's how he could keep, keep moving as you study the book of Acts through his missionary journeys, 
even though his life was on the line, he just had no fear of death at all. He wasn't afraid to die. How, how much more effective would we be as God's people if we moved away from fear and moved into faith? Jacob is very afraid. He's afraid of man. Now, I know that because if you go to verse 11, he says, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. I mean, how do you end that clause in your life? Are you afraid of him or the boss or the market or whatever it is, the economy, inflation, payments, or are you fearful of God? I think a lot of our life is wasted because we spend more time afraid of people than we do God himself. So Jacob, although he's going to do some admirable things here, I don't think he's really operating from a very good place because he's very, very much, um, very much afraid. But he, but in spite of that, he does something that I think is really admirable. Verse seven, he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. You'll notice that it says here, both companies had flocks, herds, and camels. So it's not just like the flocks, herds, and camels were in one group, but not the other. Both groups had flocks, herds, and camels. When you read something like this in the Bible, you want to ask yourself why I need to know that. So many times we... Spend so much time on the what question, what does it say, without answering the why question. I mean, why would Moses, the author of this book, surface that information? And I think the reason Moses surfaces the information is he's reminding us of the Abrahamic covenant. Where God to Abram and then Isaac and now to Jacob makes an unconditional promise of personal blessing. He promises the patriarchs, Eight things, and one of them is I'm going to personally bless you. It's right there in Genesis 12, verse 2. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. I mean, why do I have to know about camels and herds and and flocks? Because God has made good on his promise to Jacob. This is how Jacob could have all of this stuff. In spite of the fact, as we'll see in a minute, he left Canaan, crossed the Jordan with only a stick. And now he got under the unfair treatment of Laban, as we have studied. His wages were changed ten times. And that doesn't mean he got ten raises. (laughs) He got ten demotions. And yet, through all of this, he's, he's very rich. That's how wealth is defined in the Bible not based on how much fiat currency we have in our bank accounts, but material things that we own. Jacob had all of these things because God means what he says and says what he means. I mean, if God makes a promise, it's going to happen. Jacob, as we're going to see in a minute, is just totally, and he acknowledges this, he's totally unworthy of these blessings. And yet the Lord kept blessing him because of the significance of the Abrahamic covenant. Why does he want to divide the flocks? It's very practical if you look at verse 8. He says, if Esau, and he doesn't know what Esau's motives are at this point, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. If one is destroyed, then the other will survive. He's very practical, this man Jacob. He doesn't do everything right. I don't, I'm not even sure he has the right frame of mind, but he does make provision for the worst. Proverbs 27 and verse 12 says, A prudent man sees evil and hides himself. The naive proceed and pay the penalty. The person that's wise, the person that's godly, plans for the future. Um, The person that is naive is the person that ignores 
the possibility of things going wrong and suffers headlong into a problem and suffers the consequence. There is the reality of the Bible that we should prepare for the rainy day. Joseph, um, who we'll, we may get to before the rapture, I'm hoping, is going to do this very thing. It's in Genesis 41, verses 46 through 49. Just reading verse 46, it says of Joseph, So he gathered all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food in the cities. In other words, Joseph was the type of person in the midst of the seven fat years, knew that the seven lean years were coming. God had revealed that to him prophetically. And so he started to make provision for himself and his family and ultimately the nation of Israel during the good times. There's a lot of stuff that's said today about prepping that I don't really agree with. Because the preppers are sort of trying to, they don't have a very good eschatology. They think they're going to go into the tribulation period. And they think they're going to actually eyeball it with the Antichrist. And so these types of people that promote these theologies, they sell all this survival gear and all these kinds of things. And I'm thinking, you really think that stuff's going to help you against the Antichrist? I mean, goodness gracious. So prepping, I don't think prepping is good because of your eschatology. I think that's a bad eschatology. But there, having said that, there's nothing wrong with prepping. There's nothing wrong with having um, an alternative source of energy, water, freeze-dry food, canned goods around the house, not because I think I'm going to eyeball it with the Antichrist, but because we're living in a fallen world. And things can go wrong. I mean, we, did we not see that a year or two ago with the ice apocalypse, as it's called, here in our area where everything is, is shut down? Um, you know, prepping helps you a little bit during those times. And there, there isn't any great sin against prepping. Um, people think, well, if I prep, that means I'm not trusting God. But remember what Jesus says. He says, consider the birds of the air. And they're, they're toiling. I, I've never run into a lazy bird, have you? I mean, they're, all, they're always working, they're preparing. And that's how we ought to be. In other words, prepping is not antithetical to the walk of faith. It's just being prudent. And so Jacob, I think, is actually being prudent here. Joseph will be prudent concerning his circumstances later in the book. So this is what Jacob does first. He does something very practical. He makes this division. And then he does something that, sadly, in my life, I kind of look at sometimes, I'm embarrassed to say this, a last resort, which is prayer. Gee, if nothing else is working out, I guess I better pray. Whereas you see Jacob... Almost immediately after this division that he makes, he goes immediately to prayer, verses 9 through 12. And that prayer is described in four parts, verses 9 through 12. Each part of the prayer is um, a different verse. And boy, um, what a way to pray in the midst of trouble. I mean, how do you pray in the midst of trouble? You have a model for it right here. The first thing he does is he addresses God. That's what prayer is. Isn't that how Jesus taught us to pray? We're to pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We're, we're addressing God. That's what Jacob does here. The address he's given in verse 9, it, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham... Keep in mind, 400 troops, we think, or people are coming against him. He thinks he could potentially lose his life. That's the context of this prayer. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. Notice that Jacob in the prayer reminds God 
as if God needs a reminder. Maybe it's Jacob that needed the reminder. But at any rate, he reminds God of God's promise. Because God had made two Jacob promises. Back in uh, Genesis 28, verse 15, at Bethel, God had already told Jacob, this was 20 years earlier, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. This promise of God was also given in Genesis 31, verse 13. This is when Jacob started to learn he needed to leave Haran and make his way back to the land of his birth, the land of his nativity. God at that point said, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise and leave this land and return to the land of your birth. Why would Jacob pray this way? It's a reminder that, you know, Lord, I'm afraid of my circumstances, but I can't die out here. Because you made me a promise. And the promise is I've got to go back into the land. So in order for me to make it back into the land, you've got to deal with this Esau situation. Do you, do you understand, and that's why we entitled this sermon, Standing on the Promises. Do you understand that in the Bible, there are 7,000 promises for you? 7,000. Now, a lot of people today are grabbing promises that don't apply to them. You don't want to do that. You want to make sure you're taking the promises in context. I don't know if you remember the prayer of Jabez. That was a big thing uh, a few years back. They grabbed some thing and ripped it out of its context. We don't want to do that. But if you understand the Bible correctly, you rightfully divide the Word of God. You understand it dispensationally. Promises related to Israel, promises related to the church. For the church age believer, the last time I heard someone talk about this in a book, the individual said there's 7,000 promises. Covering, think, think of all of the situations they would cover. You know, provision, direction, fruitfulness. And when you pray to the Lord, it's just, it's just a wonderful thing to remind Him of what He has already said to you. I don't know if the reminder is so much for God, but it's a reminder for us. I can say that there have been a few times in my life where I've been so discouraged that I haven't even wanted to pray. So sometimes I've just opened my Bible that will relate to that situation, and I'll just point to it. Hey, God, here's what you said. The the promises of God are so powerful because you're, you're dealing with a God who cannot lie. The Bible is very clear on that. It's impossible for God to lie. So rather than, as the book of Ephesians chapter 4 talks about, you know, being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, we can get so unstable emotionally in our lives. Let's develop a mindset where we understand the promises of God and stand on the promises of God regardless of circumstances. Even in prayer, reminding God which is more of a reminder of for us what God scripturally says. He goes on in verse 10 in this prayer and he deals with past uh, blessings. Look at verse 10. He says, I am unworthy of all of the loving kindness and of all of the faithfulness which you have shown to me, your servant, For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. You notice he talks about his unworthiness. He understands that as he is the beneficiary of this Abrahamic covenant, he didn't deserve it, but he had it. 
he understands his standing in grace. That is what gives us standing before God. The fact that he has chosen to deal with us on the basis of grace. Grace being unmerited favor. Grace being very, very different than justice. Justice is getting what you deserve. That's why when people say, give me justice and give it to me right now, I'm like, well, let's get out of the way here because a lightning bolt's about to hit. I don't want God to give me what I deserve. Grace is even different than mercy where the punishment that's rightfully coming to us is withheld. That's mercy. Grace is even beyond mercy where you receive things from God beyond simply the withholding of a punishment. So if you've received grace from God, you've automatically received mercy. Not only has the punishment been withheld, but God has um, emptied his bank account into yours. And you are now blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I mean, if it was just mercy, it would be I'm not going to hell, which is good enough. But God doesn't even deal with us on the basis of mercy. He deals with us on the basis of grace. And once you understand the doctrine of grace, then you start to understand that we have no bragging rights. That's why the doctrine of grace is so opposed by many people, because it takes away their ability to boast in their religiosity. You know the verse, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith. In other words, if you're coming to God on a principle other than faith, then you're not walking in grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What's the gift? The gift of God is the benefits that we've received. And then verse 9 says, Not as a result of works so that no one can boast. Well, there's the reason why people oppose it. It takes away from a person the ability to strut around into heaven as proud as a peacock, because look at what I've done. Grace won't allow that. And that is the basis upon which Jacob presents his petition to God. He he views himself as completely unworthy, of all of the benefits that he received. In fact, 20 years earlier, he crossed the Jordan River with a staff. That's it. As he was leaving Canaan, crossing the Jordan River, making his way up to Haran, fleeing, really, he's almost like he's fleeing as a refugee. I mean, his life is on the line. That's why he and his mother developed this plot to get out of here and go to Laban because they overheard what Esau was going to do to Jacob by way of murder. I mean, he leaves there and he's got nothing to show for it other than the shirt on his back. Here it says his staff. And yet what happened to him in 20 years? He came back loaded financially. Verse 10, I am unworthy of all of the loving kindness and of all of the faithfulness which you have shown to me, your servant. For with my staff only I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two companies. I mean, my my resources are so big that I can divide them in half. And if one gets destroyed, no big deal, because I've got all this stuff over here. I mean, that's wealth. Those are riches. And he received all of those things in spite of the fact that he was given the raw end of the deal in Haran for 20 years. Why do I need to know about his companies being divisible in two because of the Abrahamic covenant again? Moses is bringing up this information to show that Jacob is walking in these things, not because of his worthiness, but in spite of his unworthiness. God said, Genesis 12, 2, I will bless you. 
And guess what? God means what He says and says what He means. Yeah, but what about His circumstances? You think God is worried about Jacob's circumstances? God is not bound by circumstances. God's hand on your life is so powerful, it's so pervasive, that if you allow Him, He will work magnificently in your life in spite of unfair circumstances. In fact, the unfair circumstances might actually be the hallway or the corridor or the doorway to greater opportunities when you think about it. Because God is not bound by circumstances. He's in the business of blessing his people. And he clearly does that with Jacob. I mean, I left with staff in hand, and look at me now. I've got two wives. Wow. And each wife came with a servant. So I've got two wives, two maidservants. And from those unions, I've got 11 sons. All of the tribes of Israel have been born in Haran. Um, Benjamin's birth is yet future. Oh, and I've got a daughter out of the whole thing too, Dinah. And and my wealth is so big, I've got to divide it into two companies. And if one of the companies gets destroyed, I'm so rich, it's not going to affect me. The grace of God, the blessings of God. Do you remind the Lord, which is not a reminder of the Lord, it's a reminder for you, in prayer, how how you've been blessed? Yeah, but pastor, you don't understand. You haven't seen my bank account. Well, I've seen your spiritual bank account. Looks pretty healthy to me. Ephesians 1 verse 3, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I mean, it's not like when you approach God in prayer, you're some kind of spiritual pauper, poverty-stricken, you know, begging for a few crumbs to come off the table. You're a son. You're a son. Galatians 4, verse 7 says, If a son, then an heir. I mean, you're not just going to get... a CEO position in the company, you're going to own the company. You're not, you're not just a manager. You're going to be an owner. You're an inheritor of the estate. I think that should affect the way we pray. That's why the book of Galatians chapter 4, I think it's around verse 6, says we can cry out, Abba, Father. Abba means Daddy. That's what kind of intimate relationship we have with the Lord. And I think sometimes this really isn't reflected well in our prayer life. We don't come to God understanding what He said about us. We come to Him based on how we see ourselves. Because we have a tendency to compare ourselves to others compare ourselves to our problems and we become like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we develop a distorted self-image. It's like you go to the uh, carnival, fair, amusement park. They have those fun house mirrors where you kind of walk up to it and it gives you a distorted view of yourself. If you're thin, you look fat. So I don't need any real problems with that mirror. Um, but it gives you a distorted version of who you are. And when you can think about that, that's kind of how we approach God. We don't approach God based on what he has said about us, based on our identity in Christ, partly because we're not spending enough time in his word to learn who we are. So we have this very distorted, funhouse mirror vision of ourselves, and we come to God uh, thinking that we're poverty-stricken when we're not. So Jacob here is addressing God. He is reminding God of his promises. He is reminding God of the blessings that he has received. And you go down to verse 11, and now comes the petition. What do you want me to do? God says. 
Look at what Jacob requests God to do. And, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with asking God to do something for you. I mean, that's what the whole disciples' prayer is about. Give us this day our daily bread. Hey, Lord, I need my physical needs met. Um, a lot of people, I used to have the view that if you ask something from God, boy, you're, you're very selfish. But Jesus himself told us when we pray, we are to make our petitions unto God. I mean, is that not what the Philippians 4 verse says that I read a little earlier? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Have you ever asked yourself what a supplication is? A prayer called a supplication. From that word supplication, you get the word supply, where you're asking God to supply, you know, a need. Jacob says, I have a need, and God, I need you to come through with a supply. And here's what I want you to do. It's in verse 11. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother. From the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me, the mothers and the children. I need deliverance from Jacob. One of the things to understand as you go through the Bible is the word save or deliverance has a very broad meaning. Usually we use the word save as... Someone has trusted in Christ, so they're not going to hell. But what you'll discover as you go through the Bible is the word save, although used that way sometimes, it's used a bunch of other ways too. Paul Paul used it. It's a sozo, verb form, soteria, noun form, salvation. He says, I need salvation, Lord. Philippians 1, it's around verse 19. What do you need me to do, Paul? Do you need me to... uh, you to trust in Jesus so you don't go to hell? No, Paul says, I've got that covered already. I need you to get me out of prison. I need you to save me from prison. And that's the same word, save. One of the things I get the privilege of doing every once in a while with uh, KHCB is they have prayer time uh, where they ask different pastors to do, you know, 15-minute increments for the week on prayer. Um, and so I'm always struggling. What, what do I really have to say about prayer that the KHCB audience hasn't heard? <laughs> so one of the things I love to do is I just like to take the great prayers of the Bible and to go through them verse by verse. So I had a chance, uh, I guess it's airing in August this month on Friday, prayer time. I just took four Fridays 15 minutes each. Yes, I can preach under 15 minutes. I know that's a shock to everybody. But just to go verse by verse through Psalm 22. Boy, what a, what a Psalm that is. Have you ever read that? It's, it's a Psalm not of repentance, confessing sin, like David does in Psalm 51. It's not an imprecatory psalm where the psalmist is calling down judgment on God's enemies. He's not doing that. He's just saying to the Lord, help. And David in Psalm 22 describes a circumstance that he was in that most of the commentators um, disagree as to exactly what, 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 when was this in David's life? It's so severe. And nobody really knows exactly what was happening, but he talks about dogs, uses the metaphor of his enemies like dogs encircling him. And the whole psalm is just, Lord, help, help, help. And then at the end of the psalm, he praises the Lord because he knows that God will help in his timing. In fact, that psalm is so interesting that when you get to verses 16 through 18, it starts to sound like the problems of Jesus. He says, my hands and feet are pierced. Um, He talks about how they divide my garments. 
We know from the New Testament, Christ's garments were divided and they gambled for his clothing. In fact, Psalm 22 verse 1 came out of the mouth of Jesus as he was being crucified. And it's just a psalm asking the Lord for help. Save me. In this case, not save me from hell, but save me from the problem that I'm in. That's that's what Jacob is doing here in verse 11. And you know what? If I'm reading the Bible right, God is in the saving business. Have you read Daniel in the lion's den chapter lately? I mean, think about that. You're in your 80s. You're thrown into a lion's den. Those lions are being starved to death. In other words, they're hungry. And they're going to devour the first thing that they see. And here's Daniel all night in the lion's den and not... And nothing happens to him negative. And what was said of God at the end of that chapter? Daniel 6.27 of God. It says he delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and earth who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And we know that was the work of God because Daniel's enemies were put into the same lion's den and they were devoured before their bodies even hit the ground. And yet here's, and all these pictures you see of Daniel in the lion's den where he looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger and he's got muscles and all this stuff. That, that's about as far from the truth as you could get. The man is in his 80s perhaps 90s at that time, is in the most frail time of life. And he's supernaturally protected by the Lord. God is in the saving business. Of course, theologically, we would know this as the three tenses of salvation. I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. Justification, past tense of salvation, I'm saved from sin's penalty, I've trusted in Jesus and I'm not going to hell. Praise the Lord for that. Then God moves us into the growth phase of our salvation, the middle tense of salvation, where we are gradually being delivered from sin's power as we walk the walk of obedience and faith, trusting in God's resources moment by moment. I'm certainly not the man I should be, but I'm not the man I used to be. I may not be sinning less, or I may not be sinless rather, but I am sinning less. And God is making that available to me through sanctification. Justification takes place in an instant. Sanctification is more of a process. And then comes glorification. All I gotta do is die. Or be raptured. And I won't have a sin nature anymore. I won't even have the ability to return to the sin nature. And that's the future tense of our salvation. So when someone asks you, are you saved? The correct answer is, I have been saved. I am being saved and I will be saved. Because God is in the saving business. God is in the rescue operation business. And you can't understand the tenses of our salvation until, until we understand this God who saves. That's what Jacob wants. I need help. And then look what he does in verse 12. He gives the basis for the appeal. Genesis chapter 32 Verse 12, now watch this. He's doing what he did in verse 9. He's reminding God of what he said. Verse 12, for you said. See, how can you tell God in prayer, you said, unless you know what God said. And you can't know what God said until you study his book. I mean, these are things that God said to Jacob Some of which happened two decades earlier, but he remembered them. 
And he's reminding God of what he said. As we've said before, the reminder isn't for God. The reminder is more for Jacob. For you said, I will surely prosper. And you will make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. When you look at the promises to Israel in terms of her numerical growth, there's three metaphors used in the book of Genesis. Number one, Israel will become as numerous as the stars of heaven. And God says to Abram, go out and count them if you can. Did you know throughout history, and you could look at the great philosophers of the day, they all thought they could count the number of stars. They all thought they had the right amount. And now in the 21st century with the Hubble telescope and everything we have, you know, we learned that just give it up. You can't count them. This galaxy, this universe is just too big. That's why God says to Abraham, go count them if you can. Being a little bit sarcastic there. That's what your descendants are going to be like. And if that metaphor is not enough, he says it's going to be like the sand of the sea. Think of all of the grains of sand on all of the oceans of the world. That's what your descendants are going to be like. And if that weren't, analogy weren't enough, he says they're going to be like the dust of the earth. You said, God, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants, he's using here the third metaphor, as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. In other words, if I die out here, how are you going to fulfill that? That's what he's saying. He's standing on the promise of God. He's standing on a revealed, declarative truth of God. And God not only told him that your descendants are going to be numerous, he also said, and we saw this earlier, Genesis 28, verse 15 at Bethel, I will bring you back to this land. So God, I'm standing on not one promise, but two. I'm standing on innumerable descendants, and I'm standing on the fact that you said I would go back into the land of Canaan, and neither of which can happen if I die out here. That's how you can develop courage in the midst of adversity. You stand on what God said. You don't look at your circumstances. You stand on the promises of God. Moses did that. Uh, There's the Red Sea, supposedly. And here is the Egyptian army coming against Israel And they have nowhere to go. And their back is against the Red Sea. They don't even know how they're going to be delivered. It looks like they're going to die. What does Moses do in that circumstance? Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14, tells you what Moses was doing. He was not hitting the panic button. It says, but Moses said to the people, do not fear. How can you say that when the Egyptian army is pursuing you and you have nowhere to go other than the Red Sea? I hope I didn't say Dead Sea. It's the Red Sea. Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. Salvation there uh, is not a heaven or hell issue, although it can be used that way, as we saw in our three tenses of salvation chart. It is, I need physical help. I need physical protection. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, will never you'll never see him again. For the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. When you are unfairly criticized or attacked, and the longer you go in this walk with the Lord, 
you will experience that. What do you do when that happens? Our natural tendency is to just jump in and defend ourselves. What the Bible says is the Lord will fight for you while you're silent. Yeah, but this this stuff is wrecking my sleep pattern. I'm so anxious about it. Well, you can sleep well at night because the Lord is fighting for you while you're asleep. Because while you're asleep, you're silent. Unless you snore a lot like myself. Um, there's a wonderful book describing all of this. It's by Hal Lindsey. It's one of my favorite Hal Lindsey books. He's known for his book, The Late Great Planet Earth. He has another book that he uh, wrote years ago called Combat Faith. He has um, an expression that he uses to describe Moses here. He calls it cracking the faith barrier. I love that expression. You're cracking the faith barrier. You're, you're calm and you're trusting the Lord because you're standing on his promises. That's what Moses did. Because Moses, like Jacob, had promises from God. Uh, you, you remember what God said to Moses, I'm going to wipe everybody out. Golden calf incident, Moses said, well, then you'd be be violating your promise of an innumerable nation. And God said to Moses, well, don't worry, Moses, I'll accomplish those purposes through you. So he had a word from the Lord that he was instrumental in the continuation of the nation of Israel. That's why Moses knew that as severe as things looked, he was not going to die on the banks of the Red Sea River in spite of the Egyptian army. I don't even think he knew exactly what God was going to do in terms of salvation, in this case protection, but he he understood enough about the, the mind of God and the character of God that he could stand clearly on divine promises. It's... A lot like flying an airplane, which I've never done. But we have many pilots uh, in our church. And a lot of them have told me that when you fly a plane, you never trust your feelings. Because sometimes it feels like the plane is upside down. And if you just reach for the instruments and rip them this way or rip them that way based on feelings, you're going to have a crash. You're always looking at the compass, which is objectively true, regardless of how you feel. And if you're in an airplane where the pilot is more interested in flying by feelings than the compass, then you need to find a new pilot pretty quick. That's what the Christian life is like. You're standing on what is objectively true, and you're not overly amped up about all of the circumstances around you. Standing on the promises. Well, how's it going to work out for Jacob? You'll have to come back next week to find out. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your truth. Grateful for the guidance that it gives us for Christian living, particularly in the times that we're living in now. I do pray, Lord, for anybody within the sound of my voice who has never heeded the call of the gospel to understand that they are loved. The very hairs on their head are numbered. And Jesus came into the world to fix a problem that they can't fix, the sin problem. And you ask us, Lord, very clearly to not trust in our religiosity to resolve that issue but to trust not in our good works, but the good work that you did for us 2,000 years ago that we celebrated today at the Lord's Supper. I ask, Father, that anybody within the sound of my voice who has never trusted in the Savior, that for them today would be the day of salvation. As the Spirit convicts them of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that they would place their faith in Christ alone for 
the ultimate work of deliverance that you do for us, salvation itself. Pray if anybody has ambiguity about their eternity that they would come talk to me afterwards. I'm available to talk even as we fellowship around the fellowship meal, just following. And for those of us, Lord, that have walked with you for a while, known you for a while, I pray that you would help us to grow in this area of standing on your promises rather than being tossed to and fro by circumstances that we might be the people that you want us to be in these last days. And we might stand out as a result to the unsaved world as lights in the midst of darkness. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said,